Hi, this is the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 22nd episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please email me at rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Homebodies Yoga Podcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening somewhere that doesn't let you rate and review, I would really appreciate you going on over to Apple and giving me a rate and review there uh, because it really does help people find the show. So I know it's an extra step, but I would really appreciate it. Uh, So let me just paint the picture for you this morning. Um, It is Wednesday, the Wednesday before this podcast will come out. And I am in my closet, as usual, except this time the light burned out in my closet. (laughs) Um, So I am in a dark closet at um, 10.05 a.m. And then um, the... I recently organized my closet, which was great. A few days ago, I just like got rid of a bunch of stuff and kind of cleaned everything out, except that I forgot there were these two boxes that I was using as a mic stand uh, when I recorded, and those boxes are gone. So I am in my dark closet, uh, my face sort of illuminated by my laptop light, and then I'm just kind of holding my mic, like I'm like about to sing like, um, you know, like a Fleetwood Mac song at some like bad karaoke place or I don't know maybe it's a good karaoke place I won't be singing anything definitely not Fleetwood Mac but I mean I like Fleetwood Mac but I won't be singing it anyway I'm not going to sing so stop asking (laughs) um yeah so that's my situation today um yeah and I um I've been thinking a lot about what I could talk to you about because to be really honest I have been very apathetic to my yoga practice lately and like pretty bored with meditation, which I think those might mean the same thing, apathetic and bored. Just kind of like not into it, I guess. Uh, And I, it's weird. I've been like really interested in movement. Like I felt like really good doing Pilates. And yesterday I actually did like some squats and I'm, oh, that's the other thing that's happening in my closet right now is I'm like really sore from doing squats with my little eight pound weights. So I am sitting on two blocks and kind of like a supported, supported squat situation with my legs wide, like kind of leaning on my knees. So it's a real, uh, it's a real beautiful view in here is what I just want to, I want to paint that for you. Anyway, right. So I've been like really into, into, um, other forms of movement, like, Pilates and running and all that but like I've had a really hard time getting myself to unroll my mat and I've had a really hard time getting myself to meditate and I was just kind of like trying to think about why last night um, my insomnia has also been kind of it goes through phases for me I'm like sometimes I sleep great and then I go through like a little week or two phase where my sleep's not great and I'm in one of those phases um so I was up last night like just trying to think of just thinking about everything like you do in the middle of the night and I was thinking about my yoga practice and I think really I think the reason I'm having a harder time doing asana as opposed to other physical activities is for me um asana has a more of a requirement to be in the present moment like uh, I can kind of like go for a run and think about other things and, you know, whatever I want, whatever's on my mind, or I can 
do Pilates and kind of have my mind be elsewhere. But I think one of the things I love about the yoga practice uh, is the necessity to be present in your body and be present in this moment. Uh, And, you know, the same is true about meditation. And I'm just having a really hard time doing that lately. And I think it's a few things like, you know, one, I feel like whenever summer comes, I get this like enthusiasm and energy, like they're just like winter being over, especially because it got really cold and snowy in Chicago here at the end of winter. So it just feels, I don't know, I feel like I'm like a bear coming out of my den. (laughs) Uh, And so I think that's part of it. And then I think the other thing is like, uh, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. are getting vaccinated. I, I'm vaccinated. And I think that just means that all of a sudden there's this possibility to make plans. So, like, you know, we have, like, a couple trips planned. And, like, I'm going to see a few friends. And I think, I don't know, that all of a sudden I have this preoccupation with the future, which wasn't there uh, before. You know, definitely not this year. Like, I think there was anxiety and worry, but not, like, excitement about the future, which is great but I think I'm having a really hard time like getting myself back into the present moment because I'm just thinking about these plans uh which you know I think is okay like every relationship ebbs and flows including my relationship with my yoga and meditation practice and I know it'll come back uh I just think it's kind of interesting how like this uh how sometimes you know there are times when your mind is really stuck in the future or stuck in the past you get kind of uh it's much harder to focus on the present which I guess is just obvious um yeah so um you know I'm still kind of I'm I do think you know you can give yourself a little leeway but there also needs to be some sort of discipline for me um as far as like my meditation practice because I know that I'm better at my life when I take time to be present and meditation is a way, uh, if I start my day with meditation, then I can, it helps me be pre- be more present the rest of the day. So I've been, this day two of like getting back into my meditation practice and it feels like rusty, you know, <laughs> just, ru- just like shaking all the thoughts off, shaking all the dust off. Um, and then my yoga practice, I've been, you know, like at least every other day, I've been like, uh, y- on forcing myself to unroll my mat and you know it's not like I'm like oh you have to exercise or you have to do sun suits or you have to have a vigorous practice it's just like hey why don't you unroll your mat and practice uh being present <laughs> like practice being in this moment right now <laughs> huh Rebecca why don't you just do down dog and only think about what down dog feels like for just a breath or two so that's been my kind of practice these days um and I know it's always better when I when I do it because then I can enjoy because you know otherwise even when I'm think when it's finally the future when I'm thinking about when I'm finally in the moment that I've been thinking about then all of a sudden I have a hard time being present even in that moment so yeah I don't know I hope I'm making sense it's funny that I've been talking about wanting to be more present uh, today because that is definitely a lesson I learned from my guest today, Hallie Bateman. Uh, Hallie and I lived together uh, about, well, I thought it was longer because time is a funny thing, uh, but she reminds me during our interview about nine years ago, we were Craigslist roommates in Oakland, California. And then 
Um, after we both moved out of that house, we lived about four blocks from each other. So we got to spend a lot of time together then. And one thing about her that I always admired is her real wonder at the world and her real curiosity about whatever's happening in this present moment. Uh, so that every experience with her kind of felt like an adventure. And, and also like she always had like really fun friends. So like whatever we did, like it would be like, you know, just like going for a walk felt like this like big unraveling of the world in a really beautiful way. Um, and, and you actually, you probably know her work. Um, Hallie is a writer and an illustrator and an author whose work's been featured in the New York Times, The New Yorker, and BuzzFeed. And she's written three books, Brave New Work, What to Do When I'm Gone, which she co-wrote with her mom. And her latest book is called Directions. And even though Hallie talks about this in the interview, it seems like she, she, she says that she doesn't really have a yoga practice. Um, there, there is something so much about her book directions that reminds me of the yoga sutras. They're kind of these like tidbits of like how to make more life, make life more full. And actually I want to read you a part of the intro, but I have to open the door to let the light in. So hopefully the sound is still okay. But in the intro of directions, um, I don't know, it just reminded me so much of the yoga sutras that I wanted to read it to you. She says, my mother says there are two kinds of people, alive people and not alive people. Alive people are engaged in the act of living, attuned to others, present in the moment, and a little bit shiny. Not alive people, on the other hand, exhibit an almost spiritual dullness. They are dampened, muted, and view life at a distance. I'm an alive person, according to my mother. I agree with her because I desperately want to be an alive person and because I feel like an alive person most of the time. And, and her whole book is just this kind of way of being more alive, which I feel like is what the Yoga Sutras are, right? This, these advice for just like being more, more in the world, right? Of, of like being more present, of being here, um, yeah, so I think you'll really enjoy the interview. Um, Anna, you, I think you'd really enjoy her book. So I, I recommend both. <laughs> I recommend buying both of her books and listening to the interview. How about that? Um, but so without further ado, here is Hallie Bateman. Just a quick note. Hallie and I talk about eating disorders and disordered exercise at about the 52-minute mark until the end of the interview. So if you'd rather skip that, that is the time to opt out. Here's Hallie. Welcome, Hallie. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so my first question is like a paragraph-long question, so I apologize, but we'll just get it get it out there. Um so when I first started this podcast, the idea was to talk to people about their yoga practice, mostly like homebodies yoga practice. Um, but as I've been interviewing people, I've really been finding that a lot of the time, even if someone is a yoga instructor or, or in some way yoga is in their living or they have a dedicated yoga practice, there are lots of practices they do uh, to make themselves better in their lives. And these are things that aren't necessarily like quote unquote productive, right? They're not necessarily what they do for work or necessarily what they need to get done. These are things that 
make people better to themselves and to each other. Um, and I know you from so long ago when we were roommates, more than 10 years ago in Oakland. And I really noticed as I was finding my yoga practice that you had this practice of drawing, of illustrating, of making comics. And I always thought that it always felt to me it was very similar to my yoga practice and that it was your way of sort of processing the world and taking time to come back better and be to come back better to yourself and better to other people. Uh, so first of all, is that right? In saying that, would you say Yeah, I mean, my jaw absolutely dropped when you said more than 10 years ago, <laughs> but it actually was like, it was like nine years ago. Oh, nine years like, ago. I was like, what? Have I gotten <laughs> older? Is, no, but that is still that is still a really long time. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for similar reasons, like living with you and getting to know you was so fascinating because we each had these practices that were similar and so different. Yours helped you emotionally and physically, and mine helped me emotionally and hurt me physically, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and still does. <laughs> Um, so yeah, drawing is, is absolutely a practice that like, I mean, I wonder if you had this with yoga, but for me, it was like, I drew since I was a kid. I, I kind of like, it, it was kind of like this thing that I didn't take seriously at all until college. And then when I discovered illustration and got into it more, it was like, it was truly like a big piece of myself falling into place of understanding like, oh my gosh, this is finally a venue through which I can communicate my ideas and people will understand them and I can better understand myself and I can process things. Like I always wrote, but adding comics and adding illustration like helped me and continues to help me like kind of like exercise my, my like, you know, both good and bad demons and like, and, and just kind of take the knotted up, like confusion within myself and kind of like unravel it on the page and have at least a better understanding of it, even if I don't have any solid answers. And so for me, like, even when it became like my job, like drawing and just my sketchbook practice is something that is like my safe place to land no matter what that like no matter how like alone I feel or if I'm I'm really like upset or overwhelmed or confused or whatever I feel like I have somewhere to go and that's so soothing um and I I remember like I was single for I, I mean the time you knew me and many years beyond I didn't have my first relationship till I was 27 and there was a lot of times where, um, you know, I might feel alone, but I always kind of felt like uh, I wasn't, I had this relationship with my practice and this relationship with myself that was really like rich and fulfilling. So I could draw about how lonely I was. And then I would just kind of be like entertained by my, by my emotions instead of caught up in them and, and seeing things on the page instead of like, in yourself, like in, instead of just like seeing like a confusing mess inside your brain, like being able to see things expressed on a page is like so, it feels so good to my brain. It's just like how I work is I'm a visual thinker. And so that's kind of what's behind it, I think, if that, if that answers your question. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So I I know this word means a lot to a lot of different people, but would you consider your drawing practice like a spiritual practice? Um, I I think it's the closest thing I have. Like, I kind of sometimes hesitate to call it that because I, I do think I need something more. I think that uh, I'm, I was raised agnostic. So, you know, I've, it doesn't really come naturally to, for me to like have a, to, to have spirituality be an element of my life. Like, I think for some people it's like, I have my friends, I have my family, I have my hobbies and I have my spirituality. Like it's kind of like an element of it. And I have never had that. And I remember I got into meditation, like, briefly when I was like 25 or 26 and part of doing that was like wow I've never had a spiritual practice like and this feels really important and uh and I think that illustrating and drawing like fulfills some of those needs but it's a little bit corrupt because some of it you know because it's my job it's tied to like money and approval and ego so it's like if you were praying every day but then you were showing (laughs) your prayers to the world and and like vying for likes and jobs like I don't think that's a super uh sequestered spiritual practice so I think that I I kind of like hesitate to call it that for that reason yeah fair enough I um it's funny you say that because I feel when we knew each other nine years, nine-ish years ago, um, both of us were trying to make this passion that we had a career. And, you know, both of us were successful. You very successful, but me like pretty, su- okay, like good enough successful at yoga. You were, you were, were like <laughs> teaching all the time. I remember. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, it feels like you do when the thing you're passionate about becomes what you get paid for. You do. It, it's almost like you lose a little bit of innocence about it in a way. Have you had that? Or I, I've had that experience. And now that I'm actually not teaching, I've like kind of like it's like come full circle back where I'm like, oh, I do love this. Um, so have, have you yeah. and your relationship with art had any of those ups and downs or circles or squares or whatever? I mean, absolutely. So like to go back to this period of time where like you and I were, were both starting out. I mean, I think you were a little further along in yoga than I was in illustration, but like, yeah, starting out trying to like make a living out of our passions, like the way that I went about that at that time, um, I was like kind of fresh out of college um, hadn't gotten paid for much illustration and was like working at a cafe and, and, but like very much like calling myself an illustrator and drawing a lot. Um, and when I did land my first job, which, um, I think you remember, like I was hired as a, um, a full-time illustrator and art director for this like tech blog in San Francisco. So it was like, you know, it was like a, it, it was like an an entry level job as far as like pay and stuff, but I was like doing what I wanted to do. And I had the title and I was like, I basically was like, I will do everything I can. I will give everything to this job because I I'm 23 and I have my dream job and I can't believe it. So um, I 
sold out for everything. Like I lost so much sleep, so many, so much of my social life, so much of my physical health because I did not know how to set boundaries with my work. So my art became this thing that was, it didn't, you know, it, it was so exciting for the first year or so. Like, I, I don't think I really felt it, but over time it was like very devastating to my mental health. I was like, I was scraping the bottom of an empty well, digging for every drop of energy of creative inspiration. And that is a very intense thing to do with the thing that you love. Like, and, and I, I mean, I think that you in many ways did that too. Like, I remember you talking about how you would bike from studio to studio. And so you're like teaching a yoga class, which is already physical. Then you're biking across the city to the next class teaching that like, that's so intense to you're, you're doing the thing you love, but you're also like, just like draining yourself of, <laughs> of like, of literally your life force. <laughs> it's very, very intense. And so I think that, especially for me, I wasn't drawing the things that I cared about. I was drawing, illustrating stories about the tech world. So, um, yeah, I remember by the end of the two years that I worked for that job, I would have to force my hand to move on the page to draw. I was just so depleted and had a, a lot of ambition for my own work. I was like, I was like, I want to make a book and I want to be a cartoonist and I want to do all these things. But I also had a full time job illustrating for this tech blog and so I just like yeah I I became so creatively blocked I had nothing left like and and I never actually there was some points where I thought about not doing it anymore I guess I, I say I never thought but I no I did I remember for a while <laughs> this is funny so I ended up moving to New York quitting that job and kind of like, like I was really inspired and I started freelancing in New York, but it like, it was really rough. And my body after two years of full-time, you know, illustration where like, I was not caring for myself physically the way that I should have. I was like pulling all nighters and like promising people things that I really like couldn't hope to deliver without like hurting myself, but I did it anyway because I think I felt like undeserving of the job. Like I felt like, how could I possibly do this job if I wasn't sacrificing everything for it? And I remember I went to a massage place and I got like my first massage I'd ever gotten in my life. And afterwards I felt so, it was like such a incredible experience that I was like, I'm gonna go to massage school. I'm gonna be done. <laughs> gonna be done with being an illustrator and I considered that for like 48 hours <laughs> and I was like I don't I'm not going to <laughs> but there were moments where I I thought about something like that but uh I I think it was just coming from a place of like deep exhaustion yeah mine was uh working at a bakery I'd like walk by this French bakery early in the morning and I'd be like I'll just I'll go make pastries all day and sell them be done by three <laughs> 
Yeah, like you start at like four in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like you work with your hands and you just like, and then you make the dough and then you leave and that's it. (laughs) <laughs> you just mas- you just massage the person and then you leave. <laughs> That's yeah. all you have to Everybody's do. happy at the end. They have a pastry or they're relaxed. <laughs> yeah, I think it was truly. And I remember going to like that massage person like looked at my back and they were like, what? They were like, your, your back's not like, are you carrying like a heavy backpack everywhere? And I was like, yeah, I, I'm in New York. Anywhere I go, I have to bring my sketchbook, my pen, my laptop. Like, and I just like had been like straining my back by like, like scampering around New York with like 20 pounds on my back every single day. So uh, yeah, that was, (laughs) that was dark. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's always like ups and downs. And to me, like discovering, discovering that I could even hope to have the ability to balance my life like to achieve some semblance of work-life balance was like a whole process that I had to go through and it took a pretty intense period of conversations with my older brother Ben who you know um who's like a very like practical organized like kind of you know businessy person he was just like what are you doing he's like you're not making enough money to like justify the level of like stress that you have. You're not taking this seriously as a business because you're, I was just treating it as like, well, it's my art. So art is like, I am my art and I must give everything to it. And he really introduced me to the concept of like, Hey, what if you calculated how many hours something would take? And then you decided how much you got paid based on the labor instead of saying what I was, which was like, art is just something that I pull out of the ether and you can't quantify it. Who knows if it's good or bad? Who knows if it's worth money or not? Like I I just had a very, very kind of ignorant um naive view of what I did and I saw it as like separate from money separate from capitalism separate from labor because if something isn't labor and it's a passion then you can do it all the time and you can like kill yourself doing it I think that artists have treated their art that way throughout history and that's why so many of them are so fucked up because they don't see it as labor and society also doesn't see it as labor yeah. And like we were saying kind of before we got air, like there's so much that you can consider art, like, um, you know, working as a yoga teacher, a massage therapist, like, you know, uh, chefs, like all of these people, you know, traditionally are underpaid. And I think it's because they're like, the yeah. idea is like, well, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. And it's like, that's the furthest thing from the truth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People are like, you should be so lucky to mm-hmm. get paid to do this. And it's like, it's kind of the calculus that I think capitalism runs on is like, I remember reading something a friend sent me about how like in, in the industry of advertising specifically, like work, people are so overworked and it's because these are, they're like creative people and it's like having a wind up toy and you just like, you give them the, the job and you know you can count on them because they're creatives to go so far with it and to just give absolutely everything Mm -hmm. and that like all these creative industries are built on the knowledge that like 
the artists will give everything and you don't have to pay them that much because they want they want to do it anyway and they don't have any better options and it's a really problematic devastating cycle that can I, can make one want to become a ma- massage therapist <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> or a baker yeah which are great careers which yeah are great careers but it's like that's not yours or my calling you know and so yeah to be to feel so um hopeless is a about your chosen path is like a really hard thing and for me the answer was starting to admit that what I did was work and that I was like a workaholic and that even though I love what I did and I wanted more opportunities and I like you know could feasibly spend all night on something like that that's not a sustainable thing and I kind of had to admit that like I had at that point when my brother had given me this kind of intervention it was like I think I was like 24 or 25 and had been you know illustrating professionally for like a handful like four three or four years and like a few more years before that unpaid and I kind of was forced to look at the trend and be like I don't think I'm gonna stop doing this anytime soon I don't want to stop doing this anytime soon I want to do this for my whole life. And so I have to find a way to make it not hurt <laughs> and like, and make it so that I have a life outside my art. And I kind of stopped identifying as, let's see, I tried to stop identifying as an artist as strongly as I had in a way of like my art is who I am and started saying in a healthy way, my art is what I do. And Mm -hmm. yes, it's my passion. And yes, it's my like, you know, can be my therapy and my spiritual practice and all of that. But when it comes down to it, it's a profession and I have to have a life outside of it. And um, I moved to LA in 2016 and I was I had kind of at that point like had started to implement some of the stuff my brother taught me having a calendar having a schedule having a budget like like having a spreadsheet of all my earnings and understanding how much I was making and and knowing how to ask for more money and things like that and um when I moved to Los Angeles from New York it was kind of this profound shift of like New York is very um as you know, it's like an incredibly stimulating place that there's tons of like opportunity and energy. And um, for me, it was like, I was already kind of a workaholic. And then New York was like, yeah, do it more, even more. Like, like, give it everything. Be only an artist. Like, like talk about art with your friends. All your friends are also creative people. Like it all was like kind of amplifying the thing that I really didn't need to be amplified, although it obviously was like, I I have nothing against New York. It's an amazing experience. But when I moved to LA for the first time, I felt like I was in more of a culture that celebrated self-care and celebrated like do what you, what you do for self-care, like 
more than, or at least like, you know, didn't celebrate what I did as a profession as like my main source of worth. Like it didn't seem as, as pertinent (laughs) and it wasn't like, like my friends had all different jobs instead of just being in one industry. And, um, I lived on a beautiful street with palm trees. So like walking was a relaxing thing instead of maybe a more like overstimulating thing. And I started to like build a life outside of just my art that, um, is kind of, I'm still like living within the foundation that I built when I first moved to LA, which was like creating distance between myself and my profession as like a healthy distance. And like, you know, lived in my first apartments where my desk wasn't in my room. And that was a huge deal. And like, Mm -hmm. and just like having, having like a social life that didn't have to do with my work all the time and things like that. That's so interesting what you say. I feel it. I feel the same. I feel like New York is the kind of place that can be really good for somebody who really needs to focus on work, like, or during a a time in your life when you need to. But if you're already, if you already are toward that imbalance, it feels like it can just like really drive you to be more imbalanced, if that makes sense. I I mean, and it's really intoxicating. Like Mm -hmm. I, I felt like the, I was in New York for only two years, which like even my friends in New York, like can't believe it was only two years, but it's like, I just had so much happen in those two years and it felt like every week there was like some life-changing opportunity of like oh my god an, a book agent called me and then this person asked me to do this story and then I I met this person on the street who like changed my life and like and all of it was like really magical but it was it was kind of fueling a mania that I already had and I ended up having to set a rule that I couldn't pull any more all-nighters after I pulled a four days in a row, only sleeping when I had to, to meet a deadline, which I set myself. <laughs> like I set, like people are like, when can you have this to me? And I was like, uh, Friday or whatever. And then instead of asking for an extension, which at that point I didn't understand I could do, I just absolutely killed myself to meet a deadline. And uh, it was a scarring experience that I I still look at the work I made during it, which uh, it's a little tainted by how painful it was to like paint for six hours, walk to a bodega, get a snack, go home, stuff the snack in my face, paint for four more hours, sleep for two hours. Like it was that for four days, <laughs> like to me, a story that I got paid like $800 for. <laughs> like, what was I doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, there's some, some rough stuff. So now I, I have no hesitation asking for an extension no matter how big the job, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. People don't actually care that much. If they do, they'll tell you, but they don't. Like, it's, I, I can't believe how much I sublimated my own needs for my perceived impression of what I thought clients needed from me, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I just like, I got used to, to, completely ignoring my own needs and it's so it's they weren't even asking me to do that you know 
Yeah, that, yeah, I totally know. It's like, it's so interesting. Sometimes when someone's paying you, you forget they're a person too. <laughs> like, oh, they would understand this. They would understand it's not possible for me to do this. And if they don't, they're kind of a jerk. Like, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it's actually like, I mean, what my brother helped me understand is that it's actually, it's a numbers game. Like I could have paint like so the the thing I stayed up four nights for was like a series of five paintings that were very detailed paintings and each took like a day and a half I mean it was crazy I could have painted one and emailed them and said hey these are t- these are much more time consuming than I thought I need two more weeks like I could have said that and I'm sure they would have said great we'd be happy to have it in two weeks great like thanks for informing us of this factual information and instead it was like facts had no bearing and it and I just uh I I was just you know really really saw art as this unquantifiable force like my creative my creativity as something that was you know, unreliable. Maybe if I, if I didn't strike while the iron is hot, it's going to be gone. Mm -hmm. Um, They said yes. And it was a total fluke. And if I don't give it to them, or if I ask for an extension, they're going to regret hiring me. They're going to cancel the job. Like there's all this like imposter syndrome stuff that I created out of feelings of insecurity, feelings of like, of like, I have to be grateful for every crumb I have. And like, and give everything to it and yeah they they totally are people just like me and art is not an unquantifiable thing it's just work like those paintings it was hours of work my my ability to like choose colors and like render an illustration like isn't something that only works at 3 a.m it works at any time it's just kind of a myth that uh I think is really was really harmful for me to believe, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, What are some things that you do when, like, say you're like taking time, like what are some practices besides your art that that you do when you're taking time for you? Yeah. um, It's you're, you're asking this at a good time because I'm actually um, taking time right now, a period of like, two months that, um, that I have, not that I won't be working, but that I won't be, you know, actively starting new projects or like I I had a book come out, my book directions came out, um, at the end of March. So it's been out for a little over a month. And, um, so, you know, I'm publicizing the book up to its release, then the book's out and I'm, I'm doing the work of like, publicizing it doing interviews doing like you know whatever you all these things that you have to do and I learned from having past books come out that the the moment when the project is born and you're no longer in anticipation it's like it's like giving birth like it comes out and you immediately want to scramble to to find the next thing. And people are also kind of asking like, oh, what are you working on next? Like what's coming after this? And like, there's a real desire to like, oh, what's my self-worth gonna be based on if I don't have a project going? And like, and what am I, and 
And like, and what am I going to do with my days? Cause now suddenly I have a few more hours a week because I'm, you know, because this is, this is out and I, I'm no longer like in preparation. And, um, I, the first time I had a book come out and I went through this experience, I experienced like the worst anxiety I'd had. And I got on Lexapro and was like, was, was completely like felt purposeless with, with, it, it was like postpartum maybe or something. I was just like, I mean, I don't have a child. I don't want to minimize that. It's a book, but, but I had some kind of like flurry of anxiety that shows up when there's suddenly a void where, a, where a book once was, where a purpose once was, where I had something to say when people asked what I was working on. And so with this book coming out, um, I knew ahead of time that I was going to feel this way. I knew that I would feel a void and I would try to fill it like right away. And I would try to like <laughs> email my agent new ideas and try to get like another book going. And I, I was like, okay, no more books till June, like no more, no more pursuing any books or like major projects until June. Like I want two months of admitting that publicizing a book is work and it takes time and it's, it's actually draining and I don't need to start on a new book when I'm still publicizing the existing book. And, um, and so that's where I am right now is like, in this period of like noticing that I have some extra space and feeling really exhilarated by that. And then another part of me is like trying to fill it and like, and like fill the void with like, like yesterday I called a friend and we like wrote the outline for a kid's book on the phone, like that just kind of came and it was really fun. And I also had to tell myself like, don't, don't email your agent. Don't do anything with this just let it be what it is for now and you'll come back to it. Like, and uh, so that's, I mean, part of my practice is, is to answer your question, I guess, is like saying no, even to things that are my own idea, because I know that where I'm at right now is a place of like desperation, discomfort with stillness. Like I, I'm a little uncomfortable because things are, quiet and like and and I'm I'm used to like being super busy and so um I I kind of devote myself to creative tasks that don't have to do with work that like can't be monetized like I got into um weaving rugs out of like fabric scraps <laughs> which is like uh, a very time-consuming sort of like ridiculous um, hobby that is like supposedly environmentally like you know you're taking like an old shirt that has a tear in it and you're you like shred it and then you like weave it into this rug and it takes like hours and hours and hours and I feel like whenever I whenever I finish a book I like get out my rug loom and I like cut up shirts and then I just like weave a rug to like fill the hours of the day that I like that I would normally try to like pour into a new job or something and so I try to do things like that um I have a garden that I like constantly fail at keeping alive but I I try with that um and yeah really having an understanding of my own patterns and having an understanding that when something you know like a big project ends and 
when I'm burnt out and when I have no desire to write or sketch that that doesn't mean my creativity is gone. It means that I'm replenishing. And so that's when that's where I'm at right now. Like I've done one drawing in the last like month I've written in my journal two times. I don't have much of a desire to do either of those things. And I think when I was younger, I would get really spooked when that would happen. I would be like, what is wrong with me? Oh my God, I'm never going to make anything again. Uh, I, what's wrong with me? I don't have ideas or whatever. And now I understand that it, you just have to have faith that it's, it's always there. It's going to come back. It was going to want to come out again. And, uh, I, it's my job to like attend to all the things that I usually forget to attend to when I'm in the flurry of making something like my body, like my physical form, <laughs> which, uh, I mean, I would love to talk to you about it as, as you being a, a, uh, more embodied <laughs> person. <laughs> You know, so much of what you say uh, about like not paying attention to your body or just in general, like you're sort of being like, I don't take care of myself, etc. It's so interesting mm -hmm. to me because from your art, like that I've seen online and that I've read in your books, it's so clear to me that you're so observational about everything in the world. And then I somehow it's like you observe like these little conversations people have, you observe like an exact tree in New York, you observe like so many, you know, just the way that people are, the way that you think. And then like when it comes to your body, it, it like somehow just turns off. It's so interesting. I mean, don't you think that those two things are connected because I have this external awareness that's like, uh, I think comes from being a child of journalists comes from being a very shy child that I have like some kind of antenna up where I'm like tuned into what are people doing? What are like trying to, I mean, my whole book directions is about kind of being awake to the world, which is something that I, I like, you know, love and, and feel, feel passionate about, but it's totally true. I mean, the, the flip side of that is that, I have such a hard time knowing how I feel. And whenever a therapist is like, you know, sometimes a therapist will be like, and, and what did you feel in your body when that happened? I'll just be like, um, my tummy hurt. Like, <laughs> I just like, like, I won't even know how to answer a really simple question. And it's very easy for me to be like a hypochondriac and think that, something's wrong because like one time I actually think this was when you and I were neighbors in Oakland I got imaginary fleas in my house because I just thought that my cat had fleas and um I I like vacuumed my entire house I washed all my clothes I went I, I was like man it's so hard having fleas and then I finally talked to my mom about it and she was like well have you seen any fleas and I was like, no, I, you can't see them, can you? And she was like, yes, they are very <laughs> visible. And I just like, and I was super itchy and like, and I just like invented fleas. I just had like mental fleas. <laughs> and I think that that's really shows how like, I just don't, don't have a sense of like reality and groundedness, which in my body, which is like been a like continual uh, issue and process for me as far as like, yeah, it's, it, 
it has consequences when you when you're drawing and you disembody so much that you look up and it's been four hours and your back hurts but you weren't paying attention at all during that entire time and like you made a ton of work that you're really in love with maybe but you're but you didn't notice your body that entire four hours you leave your body to make the work and I think it's like I've learned, I've trained myself to do that and it's really beneficial for my art, but it's really harmful to my body. And so uh, that's, it's kind of like uh, the superpower that's also your downfall or something is like disembodiment. Yeah, I have the exact opposite disease where I'm like very embodied and notice my body all the time. So I can't sit down for very long at all. Like, you know, I'll edit this interview and I'll probably stand up and go for a walk like four (laughs) times. You know, and we've been talking not even an hour. Like I can't help it. Um, So I get nothing done, but I'm very good at like telling people what they should do with their body because I can picture it very well. (laughs) Um, Wow. So if we could just get together- we could be one person. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I do think I've gotten like slowly better over the years. Like I do not pull all nighters anymore. It's like, I ask for extensions all the time. I, there isn't, it isn't often that I'm like doing that thing of drawing for six hours at a time, but I certainly like worry about long-term like health effects of doing this for a job. And like, and worry about like having a hunchback or getting a, a you know, ha- what if my hand is so stiff because of uh, what I've done because of like repeated stress injuries. Like, I think it's very, I think it's like a very real issue that I very much like must confront in order to do this for a long time. And that's when, so when I'm on a period like I am right now where I'm kind of off of like, of working, you know, on books full time or whatever. Um, it's kind of when I have to remind myself to uh, maybe check in, maybe like create a more intentional like exercise practice or like a you know health health focused like routine or something um, because it's very easy to um, it's very easy for me to abandon that part of myself and uh I kind of have yet to like find the thing that is my salvation but <laughs> I'm like working on it I guess I mean same honestly <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah yeah so you mentioned meditation in your early 20s are you still meditating no I um I in very much the the fashion of my um I I have a lot of addiction in my, on both sides of my family and a lot of like compulsive behaviors. So I like, I have an understanding of where I get that, that like stay up all night thing from like my dad, like compulsively goes on long bike rides, like every day. Like it's like, since I was a kid, I've known that. And like, my grandma like would compulsively clean when she would go on a trip. She would like vacuum. She would walk out the door to leave on her trip and would vacuum out the door so that like no footprints would be left behind. If that makes any sense. Like there's like a very extreme, extreme compulsions in my family. So I, I, 
when I got into meditation, I like went on, instead of just like trying meditation, maybe like once for 20 minutes, I like went on a 10 day silent meditation retreat, mm. which like was a very immersive experience. It was through Vipassana, if you know of them. Mm. Um, so it was like, it was like boot camp, and it was, and, th- and they're like, you, their whole message, which I, I don't know. I kind of have some, some qualms with it now. Um, their whole message is like, you can't half-ass this. You must do an hour of meditation, like every evening and every night, you cannot use meditation techniques from any other practices, like from any other, like meditation schools or schools of thought or whatever. Um, and so I came out of this 10 day retreat, like definitely a changed woman. I mean, you can't really do something like that and not change your life, which was like what was appealing about it to me at the time. I was like, ooh, 10 days, not talking, no sketchbook, no pen, no phone, no nothing. Like, sure, let's go. And I I came back from that and um, did uphold a meditation practice for like a few months, but like sadly it kind of dovetailed with like, a burgeoning eating disorder that I had. So it was kind of, it was kind of like using, I mean, I think I did this in, in many ways. I used aspects of self-care to fuel my eating disorder. So um, I became vegan, which was a nice way to restrict the foods that I was eating and to give me a basis for like denying myself a lot of foods that I wanted. And then when I got into meditation, like I did this 10 day meditation retreat and you ate the same thing every single day. You like went to bed uh, early, woke up early, had these like really, really rigid routines. And when I went back to New York after the meditation retreat, I mean, I was definitely like to my friends, like, I feel so you know, alive or like whatever. I, I don't really remember what I said. I mean, I really did. I really did feel it, it really was like a wonderful experience, but part of it was that I took, I took the rigidity of the routine at that meditation center and I applied it to my life in New York and I allowed it to like, that's what I structured my eating disorder around. Mm-hmm. I didn't go out to eat. I ate the same thing every day. I worked out for two hours every single day. Like I, it just like spun and spun. So then the meditation eventually crashed because I was like deep in a fucked up eating disorder and it was not so Zen. And then, and then I got sick from, from working out too much. And it was just like, I wasn't being mindful. Like, I mean, I was, I was experiencing some benefits of meditation, but it was aimed at the wrong direction. I was like meditating while hating myself and hating my body and like, how are those two things going to go together? You know, I, I mean, I would, I remember I would like, I would be starving myself and I'd be sitting on my little meditation pillow and like, and I would, I would write in my journal about exactly how much I weighed. I mean, trigger warning that I I don't want to trigger anyone. Um, But uh, yeah, it it was, I haven't really talked about that before about the connection of those two things, but um, I don't think it gave me a very sustainable entry into meditation. I think it kind of fueled the really compulsive parts of myself. And uh, I think I would, knowing how I am and knowing my tendencies, I think I would benefit from a 
much gentler, much more adaptable, like meditation practice. And I haven't like really opened myself up to that yet. Yeah. Wow. That is so interesting what you say. I feel like, I mean, I just, I have a similar experience, like starting to do yoga because of like body image issues and eating disorder issues. And it's always, it it does make you, I don't know. It's always made me feel a little insecure about my relationship with yoga. Like it's not because of where we started, you know, because I started out trying to just be like tiny and, you know, and, and of course now actually yoga makes me feel bigger and like more spread out in a really nice way. But yeah, it's something I actually talk about in the show a lot is like, it's so interesting how wellness practices can, I don't know, these things we call like self-care, you can just hate yourself while you do them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it can be a symptom of a really unhealthy person, the stuff that's supposed to be really healthy. Like I was like, I was exercising, I was meditating, I was vegan, and that's the least healthy I've ever been. Like, mm-hmm. what's up with that, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, it, yeah, it's like, and like anyone else would look at the outside and be like, oh, checks all the boxes, she's healthy, she's doing great. <laughs> yeah, and that really helps you remain in denial and mm-hmm. really helps you like tell yourself that you don't have an issue and you're, you're becoming a better, like a better version of yourself or, or whatever. And, um, it's actually, I I thought about like seeing a, um, like a eating disorder specialist or something in order to understand for me, um, how to exercise from a place of self-love body positivity of not trying to be small because um part of my disorder was exercise addiction and i as i mentioned like i made myself ill from that like i i truly would like become bedridden for like a week after just like binging on exercise and not eating anything and and it was horrible and um now when I like I can't really do extreme exercise for more than a a couple days in a row and I start to get afraid that I'm going to fall into you know even even if I'm even afraid that I'm going to fall into like liking feeling slimmer like I I, and that scares me and and I don't want to invite that like compulsion back into my life because I love I love where I'm at, but, but then you can't like treat your, you know, issues that come up with anybody that you need to, you need to do regular, like a hard exercise or, you know, just like have a very various forms of exercise. And like, all I do now is like go for walks every day. Once a month, I will do like an online Pilates class, (laughs) like truly like very infrequently. And then I'll like play tennis and, um, I want to become stronger. I want to like gain strength and I want to feel powerful. And I want to like have, I want to like, you know, have better like endurance and breathing and all these things that come from, from doing exercise on a regular basis. And I am having, I've just had a really hard time since like recovering, of uh, getting back into that in a way that feels kind I don't know yeah no I I mean it always comes back I feel like it always comes back to hating capitalism on the show but like it's 
<laughs> There's something so infuriating about capitalism that what it did was take wellness practices that should make everyone feel good, like asana or even like Pilates, right? And turn them into these, this way, you know, the, the way they're packaged to us is like, do this so you look better. And then we listen to that. And then the only way we think of doing it is to look better. And it's just so infuriating. Um that somebody can ruin you from the inside, your physical body, that somebody can fuck that up. Like it's. Yes. Yes. And I mean, speaking of like, of, of disembodiment and embodiment, like me feeling disembodied allowed me to look in the mirror and see only how I looked and not at all how I felt like Mm. I, and I, I'm now like, I've, I've like learned intuitive eating. And I'm I'm much more able now to like, think about how eating something will make me feel and have that be the, the basis. And, and like, and actually like, you know, I, I find myself more beautiful now than I did when I was at the worst and at the skinniest point of my eating disorder. And I feel really grateful for all that. And it, and there is, I just think there's some, there's more, learning that I have to do and that I want to do about just what you're talking about, which is like taking this like really messed up, like capitalist interpretation of like all exercise and how all exercise is for beauty above all else. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I, I have, I remember when I, when I like, hadn't quite admitted that I had an eating disorder. My mom shared with me that my grandma throughout like the second half of her life just kind of stopped eating, didn't exercise and um, became so frail. Like I remember her being so, so frail and just tiny, tiny, old, frail person. And, and I, and I couldn't believe that that was because of an eating disorder. And I had never known that, that, that she truly wasted away. And, um, and it's very like sobering to realize like, Oh, I remember how small she was and how scary that was and how it's, it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't, there was something, you know, very much something else going on there. It wasn't just that she was old. It was that she, she was, she had no, muscle strength she had nothing because she just didn't eat and didn't like exercise and um and it's like you know there's there's plenty of uh warnings for that like there's plenty of people that we can look to and say like including ourselves that we can say like wow this is this can be really bad and I don't know I feel like I'm I, I, I'm just still almost a little phobic of like hard exercise. <laughs> that makes sense. And I don't think there's a reason. I mean, I know I don't want to take too much of your time, but I, I really don't think there's a reason for there to, for hard exercise to exist personally. Like, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I realized a while ago that like, Oh, when I take a yoga class or when I teach a yoga class, and this is really sobering, when I teach a yoga class and someone says to me after like, wow, that killed me. Like, oof, I'm going to be, I'm not, I'm going to have like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to like handle the rest of my day. Like that's not a compliment. Mm. 
Like people should do their physical exercise and afterward be vital in their life. And that has like really, that's something that's, that's like, I feel like I'm, it's still my relationship with exercise and yoga is still complex and body image. But one thing I always think about is like, do I feel better after or no? Am I going to feel better after this or no? (laughs) So like, that's the only. Wow. Very much, very much like the thing, like with food, like with intuitive eating, like thinking about like, how, how will this make me feel? And that's really interesting. Yeah, and of like, course, it's like, not about, it's not about like, I, cause that whole killing it thing is, or like, like that killed me is there's a whole punishment mm-hmm. aspect. There's a very brutal tone to that. Yeah. And like, I, again, I'm not gonna take a lot of time, but I think it could go back to like how religion is not really in our country anymore. And now people use um, their exercise practices and their eating habits as a way as to find a new way of like religion and like to punish themselves. But that is <laughs> a whole other thing. Love it. But uh, we could probably get really Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Hallie, it has been so good talking to you and catching up and thank you so much. Um, I know that people are going to want to buy your book and learn everything about you. So where can they find you? Yeah. So, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Halleth Bates, which is not my name, but just the handle that I chose in 2007. (laughs) It's H H A L L I T H Bates, B A T E S, um, Halleth Bates. And, uh, my book directions is, uh, anywhere books are sold, um, you'll you'll find it linked um, on my socials. And uh, yeah, I uh, I appreciate any anyone buying it. And uh, thank you so much, Rebecca, for having me on your podcast. I'm so honored and so it feels so good to talk about this stuff with you. And it reminds me of like so many conversations that we we had back in Oakland and. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hallie. Uh, I enjoyed so much catching up with her. And I really do recommend buying her new book, Directions. Um, Yeah, it's been like my little buddy. Like when it first came in the mail, I read it cover to cover. But now I kind of just like read one or two every morning to help me set the tone for my day. And I find her advice like popping in my mind in the funniest times. Like she has one really funny one about like, if you change your outfits more than four times a day, it's just like not happening that day. Like wear all black, uh, wear overalls or just wear your pajamas all day. And I find myself thinking about it when I like can't figure out what to wear. Uh, just things like that. Uh, anyway, really recommend it. Uh, it's a wonderful book. And then her other book uh, that I've read is What to Do When, when I'm Gone, which is just, I don't know, it just feels like really generous of her and her mom to have written this book together that is just such a reflection of their relationship. Um, it kind of feels like they're welcoming you into the family in a way. And Hallie's illustrations are so beautiful in it. And also, I don't know, her mom, Susie, is just like, maybe it's the mom you have, but you don't remember her advice. Or maybe it's the mom you have you didn't have for one way, reason or another. But her wisdom and advice is just so funny and perfect and I don't know. It's just great. So I really recommend um, both of those books. But we are getting into our 
third niyama today. So the yamas are kind of like just a reminder. The yamas are a way that you approach the world. And then the niyamas are sort of the way you take care of yourself, the way you approach yourself. And the third niyama is tapas, which means discipline. And I so hate it when yoga teachers talk about tapas in an asana class and they're like, so do more core work. Like that is not really what tapas means. Tapas is, I, I think, really the discipline to do the things that are better, that make you better at your life, uh, which like, you know, unless six pack abs make you better at your life, I don't think core work kind of applies, but it's this, um, ability to really focus on the things that to, to find your focus on the things that make your life more full rather than distract you from the fullness of life. Uh, so like another um, translation of tapas is burning enthusiasm, like doing those things that like, you know, make you shine uh, and, and kind of getting rid of the things that dampen you or, or cover up your light. Um, yeah, so like when I was talking in the beginning of this about how I'm having a hard time doing yoga and meditating, but that I know those are the things that help me be more present, right? It's that discipline. It's like unrolling my yoga mat because I know that it will make me better at being in my life, a bit better at being a participant in my life. So it's, it's that kind of discipline, not so much like doing a thousand sit-ups a day or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is the third niyama. And um, I'm going to leave it there. It's time for me to get out in the sunshine. I've been in this dark closet long enough. <laughs> uh, so enjoy your practice. And uh, you can always find me at Rebecca at Homebodies Yoga. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Homebodies Yoga Podcast. And again, if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to rate and review. Happy practicing. Bye.